Mary and I kind of talked about it. It's not really necessary for a long and lengthy introduction to somebody like Roger Davis or Paul Beecham. So where are you, Paul? Right there. Paul has our program for the next three weeks, and we're so glad. Well, this morning, I want to start a series of lessons on the story of the prodigal son. I got uh, cued on this by Lynn Roberts, who gave me several months ago this little book, The Prodigal God, Not the Prodigal Son. Gee, what an idea. I never heard that idea before, had you? Written by a guy named Timothy Keller, who is a man, a preacher, and a, a theologian who founded a Presbyterian church in New York City a church that really kind of specialized in finding the prodigals who had lost their way. Nobody said, you, you can start church in New York City if you want to, but nobody will come. But they came. And uh, he also has a, a couple of other books out. He has a, another book entitled The Reason for God, which is kind of an apologetic against the crassness of the, of the modern age. And I'm working on that a little bit, too. But what the, the reason I, I want to bring these lessons is because, you know, haven't we all heard the prodigal son story a pretty good bit? Kind of thought we knew it. But this guy stirred up uh, some issues in the prodigal son story that I don't think that I had, had ever heard anybody say in particular. So, um, that's why we're having the lesson today. When you take the word prodigal itself, it starts off, you go to the dictionary, recklessly extravagant. Sounds right. Having spent everything. But you read on, and you're going to say, how are you going to apply that to God? And then if you get to extremely generous, lavish, lavish to an extravagance that does not count the cost. Now we're talking about the Lord, right? Is that not what God did for us? Is that not the gospel? That is the gospel. That God, Christ, God in Christ abandoned the glory of heaven and became a man. And in that sense, what uh, you could say from a, a human standpoint, what a risk he took. What, what an adventure to bring to us what we couldn't give to ourselves. And so, uh, here we are then in looking at the father in this story and seeing him as the one who's doing something extravagant yes in the sense that he's the polar opposite of the extravagance and wastefulness of his son here is here is god giving us his all giving us everything and coming to us now when you get to this story of the prodigal son 
it really is, it's in the 15th chapter of Luke, it's not in any other gospel. It really is in the midst of two chapters, Luke 14 and 15. And what I think makes this parable, because I think it's the great, it's the great story in the Bible. It's the, it's the greatest of the parables of Christ. This is a parable about the kingdom of God. In other words, we ought to be able to read this parable and come back and say, this is what the kingdom of God is like. And if you want to look at it in that broader context as parables of the kingdom, then you need to go back to the 14th chapter and get the real, the big picture. Because this is cast in the idea of the time when Jesus is in the midst of his conflict with the religious leaders of the day, the, the religionists, the church people of the day, the leaders of the Jewish nation and the Jewish religion, and he is in a conflict with them over the legitimacy of his messiahship. And they are on him. And they are watching him. And if you go to the first verse in the 14th chapter of Luke, it says, Jesus was invited to the home of a prominent Pharisee on the Sabbath for a meal. And they were watching him. And so Jesus, not to be intimidated, as he is about to walk in the door, there is a, is a guy that uh, is sick with dropsy, heart failure, I guess. Jesus turns and says to his associates, the uppity head of the board kind of folks, he says, uh, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And they, of course, with their tongue tied, not knowing whether to say uh-huh or uh-uh, said nothing. So Jesus reached down, reached down, healed the man, and walked on in. And then he turned to his associates and he said, let me tell you a story. If on a Sunday your son or your ox, good bit of difference right there, <laughs> fell into a well... And I guess you can think of a digged well that might not be that deep. Would you not go get him out? Just because it's Sunday, you're not going to wait till Monday to go get a valuable animal. And for sure enough, you wouldn't wait very long to go get your son out of the well. And uh, they, of course, uh, don't know quite uh, what to say. And then he goes on from there in the 14th chapter, and starts telling them several stories. Now these stories are, are a part, really, of the whole little batch of stories here uh, that have to do with parables of the kingdom. Jesus then notices how, and this is the home of a prominent Pharisee, so you gather there are a number of notable people around there, and he notices how some of the guests are busy doing what the rest of us do, going around looking for the best seat in the house. And he decides on the basis of that to tell them another parable. He said, if you are invited to a feast, don't go pick out the best seat up near the head table. Go sit in the back of the room. 
And then later on, when your host comes by, he'll say, oh, come on, come on, let's sit back here in the back, come up here. Let me, I got a place for you right up here in the front. And then you'll feel like somebody and your guests will have treated you with recognition. But on the other hand, you go sitting up front and a little bit later comes in somebody else that he wanted sitting up there. He's going to embarrass you by telling you to go to the back of the room. Uh, now this whole idea of a feast, which is going to be mentioned in these two chapters on it, at least three occasions, this whole idea of a feast is a foretelling of heaven. We're going to do this, this lesson today to set up the context. Next week we're going to talk about the elder brother and the spirit of the elder brother and uh, some Comments by Barbara Brown Taylor, the Episcopal uh, preacher, theologian. And then the last week, we're going to talk about heaven. Because when you talk about a feast in the Bible, you're talking about heaven. Every time there's, there's mention of a feast in Jesus' words, he's really talking about heaven. So then Jesus uh, goes on right after that and tells them another story. He said, there was a man who gave a feast. This is an invitation to heaven. Who were those that were invited by the Lord ahead of time? It was the Jewish people. They were the special invitees. He's going to give a feast. And when he gives a feast, when he sends his Messiah, when he's preparing for the end time, he sends out um, people to invite everybody okay, to his feast. Now, People started giving excuses, and some of the lamest excuses you've ever heard. The best one, uh, well, one of the worst ones is the first one. Guy said, uh, look, I can't come because I have bought a field, and I have to go look at it. Give me a break. Have you ever bought a piece of property you didn't see? You know? I mean, has he got to worry about it because if he don't get on over and look at it, it's going to get up and move? I've got, I can't come to this feast, which is terribly important, because it's God giving the feast. can't come to God's feast because you've got to go look at a piece of property involved. It's ridiculous, and of course everybody hearing the story realized how, how ridiculous it was. The second guy said, look, I can't come because, that's a big important farmer, I have bought five yoke of oxen, ten ox, okay, oxen, and I have got to go try them out. You got enough land, you got enough stuff, where you're going to buy 10 oxen. You personally plan to be out there plowing them boys? You've got a superintendent, you've got people that work for you. They're going to go try them out. They can come tell you these are pretty good oxen, you ought to buy them, right? I mean, what a lame. He's the owner now. He's going to go out there and plow in the field with five different yoke of oxen. The only excuse that has any meaning at all is the last excuse. And this guy says he can't come because he's married a wife. Everybody understands that, right? When you have married a wife, you are, you are in for it, right? And whatever the wife says goes. And we, all the guys understand this plainly. That's a pretty good excuse. Nevertheless, uh, the giver of the feast was not at all impressed by that. 
And then here, as you see the people listening, there are two groups of people that are listening to the story by, by Jesus. There are the scribes and Pharisees and the leaders and the teachers. They're on the one hand, and they're the ones that these stories are aimed at. The other group that's doing the listening are the sinners and tax collectors. Don't you love those categories? The sinners and tax collectors were collecting around Jesus, listening to what he's saying. The, the scribes and the Pharisees said, he's got to be telling them something he ought not be telling them. So let's go out there and listen to what he's saying. Then when he comes out with this foolishness, we can catch him. But these people were coming to hear Jesus wonder why. Maybe it's because they were hearing the truth for a change, you know, like listening to the, the political conventions, you know, I'd like to hear the truth for a change. And Jesus was doing what none of the church people would do. He was uh, traveling with them, eating with them, going with them into their homes. He was touching them. And eating with somebody in those days was acknowledging their person. You're somebody. And you're somebody important if you would eat with, with another person. So, uh, uh, here, here we are um, with, these, with these people who have come up with the excuses as to why they can't come to the, the party that God has given. And the, and the, servant, the, the giver of the uh, party says in this, to his people. You go out in town and listen where he's going to send them. You go in the back streets and the alleyways of town and you bring the crippled, the lame, the blind, and the poor. And you bring them in. In one place, and he was talking about that sort of, he says, compel them to come in. And so they went and did it and they came back and reported and they said, there's still room. Now we're getting on the missionary trip. Now he says, okay, you go back out in the country, on the country lanes and paths, out where the poorest of the poor are, and you bring them. My house is going to be full. So there we began to see something of the heart of God, where he is with us. Here are a group of people who, are, who as the religionists of their day, they're proclaiming what the standard is. Jesus is giving something that flies in the face of their elitism. Then in the next chapter, the, the chapter, the 15th chapter, where the parable of the prodigal is, there are really three parables in there. The first is the parable of the lost sheep. Then the parable of the lost coin. Coins, one coin. And then the third is the parable of the lost sons. Not son, sons. In the parable of the lost sheep, you know, I was doing a little reading on that this week. The Lord didn't do us any particular favor by calling us sheep. According to some of the things you read, sheep got to be the dumbest animals on the planet. If they get lost, they just kind of stay lost. They don't know what. They don't know how to get found again. They don't pay attention to what they're doing. They will not drink around running water because sheep they can't swim. And the other thing I did everything. If a sheep being that big, you know, a woolly a coat, if he falls in the water, he's going to get wet and drown. 
and the fact that he's full of wool is going to help uh, drown him. Dumb sheep. And so what this parable says, and now we're talking about lostness. We're defining lostness. A sheep gets lost, and at the end of the day, uh, when they're counting up, instead of 100 sheep, we only got 99. Now, Jesus says that the shepherd is going to leave 99 obedient, good, appropriate sheep out there in, in the wilderness to fend for themselves in one sense, unless you could think he's got some other people that help him. And he is going out looking for this one sheep. And he's going to search and search and search until he finds him. And then another thing, which I'm not really quite understand, he's going to pick that sheep up and put him on his shoulders and bring him back. I guess because they don't lead very well or something. Uh, can you imagine that? That he's got to go not only go after the sheep. Sheep can weigh a good bit, right? They're, he's going to put him on his shoulders and he's going to bring him home. And when he gets home, he's going to have a fit about how delighted he is to have his sheep back home and have him found. My sheep was lost, good as dead. Uh, here he is. He's back home and, and he's having a, a, a real, a makes a real big thing about it. He tells the other story. The other story is a story of a woman uh, with... Uh, Ten coins, is it? Yes. And she loses one of them. And she's going to sweep the house. Now, they said the reason that she's going to have to sweep the house, poor people in those days probably lived in a house didn't have any windows and probably had a dirt floor. And if you got something lost, you may just, best way to find it might take a broom and go around and sweep everything pretty carefully and, and you just might sweep it up. When she finds it, she is happy and goes and tells all her neighbors how wonderful it is. Now, the same kind of principle, of course, applies in the story of the prodigal son. If God is delighted about a lost sheep and the woman is delighted about one lost coin, what about a lost son when there are really only two sons? And so now we're to the the story of the prodigal son. Everybody knows it, so I'm not even going to read it. Uh, you know the story. A man has two sons, a younger son and an elder son. The younger son is an impotent sort. It really makes me wonder, was he raised right? Almost. But this impotent boy comes and demands of his father that the father, who's not laying on his deathbed, mind you, I mean, maybe, maybe Papa's 60 or 65 years old, but he's not on his deathbed. This is not in anticipation of the father's death. This is because the son is a smart aleck, and he's greedy, and he is narcissistic, and he wants what he wants when he wants it. And then think what the father does for this boy. What should the father have done by our standards? She said, what in the world is the matter with you, son? Are you crazy? I'm not going to give you anything. I'd have to go sell land. We'd have to convert, you know, our place 
this is our land. I mean, if you had anything in those days, land was extraordinarily important. He's going to have to sell part of the farm to give this boy his what he's asking for, his one-third, because remember, he's the youngest son. The oldest boy is going to get two-thirds. And you could, you could see the father saying, you know, this it's just a, a, an inappropriate request. And there ain't no way I'm going to do that. Start sounding like God. Look what God did for you and me. Paul says in Ephesians that even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that God sent the Lord. So here is, a, is an example of what God has paid for us. The Father does what it takes to sell a portion of the property and give this impudent son of his a third of the Father's life. The word used for what the Father says in one place says his living. He divided his living among them. The word used there is a Greek word, bios. Literally, he's, he's dividing up his what's been his life. That's what the Father's having to give. He's having to give his life. And in that sense, we see the picture of what it cost God to become Christ and come to us. The price of doing that is imaged here for us as a father selling uh, a portion of his livelihood. Then, of course, we get the story about the boy. Of course, it's no time flat before he's looking for greener pastures and a bigger way of living, and off he goes in no time flat. He is flat broke. There's a famine in the land where he lives. He has to try to get uh, something to eat, so he goes out, and as a young Jewish man, he's out feeding pigs. And you can't, you can't do anything worth seeing. Were any of y'all here last night to see the thing? How'd you like the pigs in that thing? Wasn't that great? The, yeah, Godspell last night, uh, the folks put on here at the church is wonderful. Here he is out there feeding the pigs. Now, the scripture says in the old, just, and when he came to himself, in the newer translation is when he came to his senses. But if you think for a minute, what this boy really came to was he came to being tired of being hungry and poor. And when he starts thinking about what he's going to do, the scripture doesn't put the emphasis on his repentance. The emphasis is on he's hungry and he's broke. And he's really kind of afraid he might starve to death. And so he says to himself, Look, back at my father's place, all the hired folks have got plenty to eat and a good, you know, and a decent living. What I need to do is get up out of this pig pen and go back there and make a deal with my dad. Look, dad, I don't deserve to be considered your son anymore. That was a pretty good piece of reality, wasn't it? That do we deserve what the Lord did for us? And and Jesus also said in this, this same sort of time that the sinners and tax collectors were coming to him and listening while the religious people 
We're checking him out. So the boy is ready to come home, not without a good bit of selfish uh, looking, looking out for himself. He does come up with some repentance. You know, there's a sort of thing that says that when does the repentance really come for us repentant sinners? And there's one way of looking at it theologically that says it's the Holy Spirit who comes to us, convicts us of our sin, draws us to God, and who gives us the Holy Spirit. It's after we become a Christian that most of the repenting and the changing in our lifestyle happens. That's something that's happening to Christians, not to sinners. So this boy's coming home now with his bargain. He's going to tell his pop, uh, you know, the little rehearsed story. And he's going to ask him to uh, let him live on the place and be a hired servant. Would you bring one of your children back home and hire them? And, of course, we get the story. The father has never given up looking for that boy, has he? Why on that particular day would the father have seen him a long way off? If he hadn't been accustomed to looking down the road, probably, you know, maybe you can see every morning the father gets up and looks down the road to see if he can see any sign of that boy. And every night before he goes to bed, looking back down the road to see if he can see him, looking for him. The love of God is, is enormous here. The boy's coming down the road, probably with his head down, and scuffling along, and the father sees the boy. It's not the boy that saw the father. The father sees the boy. And what does the father do when he sees the boy? Runs! In that culture, no dignified man would hitch up his you know, the dress, the robe he's wearing, around his knees and go running. It would be disrespectful for a man to do that. The boy is supposed to run to the man, to the father. He's the dignified, you know, he's the injured party in this. The father runs to the boy, falls on the boy's neck. The boy's trying to start giving him his well-rehearsed story about what it is he wants. The father doesn't have any time to hear it. No time to hear that story. Look, he says, bring bring a robe. The best robe in the house. Who would that have belonged to? The father. Put the robe on him. Go get some shoes and put on his feet. Go get the ring, the signet ring. You know, I've always liked this medical college ring. It's kind of interesting with a Skull and crossbones on it. But the signet, the signet rings uh, were used, you know, to put the stamp of, of uh, uh, the appropriateness of ownership. Authenticity, the stamp of authenticity on anything. Put a ring on his finger. Why? Because this is my son. He was lost. He's found just like the sheep. He was dead, and yet he is alive. Let's have a party. Go kill the fatted calf. Let's get the party going, right? Then, of course, we know the rest of the story. Flips over to the the prodigal son's older brother, and we're going to talk more about that. But we know what happens. 
when the elder brother comes in. And the elder brother in this story are the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers, the people that are right in the house listening to the story. And when he comes up, he is mad. He is upset. He is not going to come in there and participate in any of this kind of foolishness. You know, why does the father not recognize what this boy has done? Actually, in in the sense, the scolding that is implicit, implicit in the elder son's conflict with his father is, Dad, what is the matter with you? Don't you understand what this boy is doing? Don't you understand what you are condoning? By letting that rascal come back in the house, don't you know where he's been? Come on, come to your senses. This this boy needs to learn his lesson. And then, of course, he he contrasts the the fact that the father hasn't required anything out of this boy as evidence of why the Father's going to take him back in. What did he require out of you when you got saved? Nothing. Nothing. This boy is absolutely 100% entirely dependent on the grace of his Father. And the elder brother's not having any part of that. Of course, there's another part of that. that we'll, we're going to talk more about this next week. The elder brother is the guy now who has the remaining two-thirds. He, of course, is the kind of guy that stayed in church. He didn't leave. He didn't leave the church. He didn't go out there and do these ridiculous things. He's a nice guy. You can imagine he could. He, he might even be on the board. You know, I mean, he's he is a decent fellow. He is hardworking. You stop and look at the all-American boy. That's the elder brother. Except that he is self-righteous. I have worked hard for you. Actually, he didn't even use the word worked hard. I have slaved for you. You mean to tell me that a child who's been in the presence of the Father all of his life will regard himself and who he thinks the Father thinks he is as a slave? I worked my fingers to the bone for you, Dad. And what did it mean? You never gave me a party. You probably never asked for a party. In fact, being the only son that was there, he could have had a party any old time he wanted to without any problem. Nobody had to ask. But he is now giving his father a degree of comeuppance that's not hardly any, it's just a, in, from an entirely different place. One is a, is a smart aleck and a, and a headstrong. The other one is self-righteous. And he's going to, you know, bring his dad up short over what he's done for the father all of this time. Oh, did the father try to straighten that guy out? Did he give him any crap at all? Son, I love you. Everything I have is yours. I've had you all the time. 
That's good. You've always been here. I'm delighted with you. Please come on in. Why? Because it's your brother that's come back. The reason you're going to come in and accept him is because he's your brother. It's not what you've done. It's not how much you deserve anything. It's who we are. We're God's children. We're God's lost children. And God's going to go out of his way to welcome us home. In this case, the self-righteous brother couldn't do that. And it is amazing where Jesus leaves this story. Once the brother says, no, I'm not coming in. The father goes back in the house, back to the party. The older brother stays outside in the dark by himself. If you ever wanted to get an idea about how it is people can go to hell, God doesn't send anybody to hell. Everybody that makes it to hell makes it on their own. And he is right there. You know, his absolute refusal to accept the graciousness of the Father. Now, of course, it's going to cost him. He's going to have to let this boy back in as a brother, not as a hired man. He lets him back in as a brother. Now we're back to dividing up the remaining two-thirds. It's going to cost the elder brother. It's going to be costly to have him back in the family. But this boy is more interested in his stuff the same way the younger brother was. He was interested in the stuff he could get. Getting his hands on what he was due was more important to him than his relationship to the father. And now here again we have the elder brother who is downplaying the significance of his relationship. The father has said, come back in, not because he deserves it, but because he's your brother. And this fellow won't do it. And Jesus lets the story end right there. That's it. Father and the, and the no-count rebel are in the house having a feast. And that feast is heaven. And the self-righteous brother is out in the dark on his own. I'm going to just about get there. Now here's next week's. Next week, I'm not going to do all the talking. Next week, what I want you all to do is I want you to come in here and I want you to tell me what is the matter with this boy? What is the matter with this elder brother? Now, we, friends, need to be pretty expert on figuring out what's the matter with him because he's in the same position in this story. He represents the same, he represents us. We're the insiders, we're in the church. We're supposed to be those who are God's people. We're supposed to be representing the attitude and, and the intention and the love that God has. We're supposed to be missionary. We're supposed to be reaching out to those that are lost without counting. Paul says it in Corinthians, second chapter, second Corinthians, what, third or fourth chapter, to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them, not counting. 
God's operating on an entirely different mechanism than his older brother, isn't he? He's interested in the boy because he's his boy. God took a risk when he made us the way he did. Goodness, he invested a lot of ability in us, and including the ability to say no, you know, the ability to be, the ability to want to play God in our own life, run our own, paddle our own canoe, and do it our own way, just like both of these boys had their, had their problems. God, God gave us a lot. He could, he could have saved himself a lot of trouble if he'd have made us a little dumber. But he has, he has risked a lot in you and me. And sometimes it's difficult for us to appreciate what the cost is to God. I, I, I don't know, you might could say you'd like to ask God that question when you get there, but I think when we get there, you won't need to ask the question. So what's the matter with this boy? What's the matter with this elder brother? We need to think about that in the sense that we want to be for sure that we avoid as many of his traits as we can. And of course, most of us are probably already avoiding all of the elder brother traits in us that we can see. Right? You understand? I mean, do we not understand that in our personalities, the most difficult pieces of us are those things that we can't see? Everybody else can see it. You want to ask me what I'm like? Don't ask me. I've got a nice story I can tell you about what kind of nice fellow I am. Go ask my sons. Go ask my wife. Go ask my worst enemy. You know, just go ask somebody who ain't particularly impressed with who I am. Go ask him what you think about this guy. What kind of fellow is he? You with me? Because we have got rose-colored glasses on. You think the elder brother thought he was in the wrong in this story? I thought he was absolutely right. He is correcting God in the story. You know, like, Dad, what in the world can you not see how what you are doing, letting this guy back in the house? You've already taken him in? So we want to talk about that uh, next week. And then, considering the idea that the feast is a picture of heaven, we'll talk about that next week also. And before everybody leaves, we will quit for the day. Let's, let's, let's close with a word of prayer. Our Father, uh, your word is so, so good. It is so full of truth. It's so instructive to us. As your children, Lord, let, let us not, let's not, help us not to miss the significance of the story. And uh, work within us, work on us, and work within us to uh, shape us that we might uh, uh, truly be uh, your children. In Christ's name we pray, amen. amen. Wonderful, Paul. Thank you. So we get to go home and psychoanalyze ourselves this week. Mm. Got it. Uh, I end with a Bible verse, and this week our Bible verse was, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And the funny thing is, I gave Judy the paper, because she was going to write it up for me, 
to do that Bible verse, and the paper says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want, which is the NIV version. But let's close with the real version, okay? And you can join with me. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. I anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen.